0: Fear hasn't been a dominant emotion in my life most of the time. I think the way that I kind of combat it is I try to plan, I try to prioritize, and I try to really think about the risks very carefully. I wasn't scared. I just knew I had to do things a little bit differently. Hi,
1: I'm Jubin operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration about how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Enjoy! Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on this show. So if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out. There are companies in the KP portfolio that I would have dreamed of working for as an operator. Let's see if we can't find your next great career move. Osge, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: I am thrilled to have you. I wish we were doing this in person. However, a few things got in our way, COVID included. So here we are, we're gonna to have to make up for it in New York City someday. I get all of these things started the exact same way. I read my guests' backgrounds back to them. Tell me where I screw up. We'll go from there. Cool?
0: Works for
1: me. Okay, I'm going to screw up the first bullet, so just bear with me here. But you got your bachelor's of engineering from, say the name of the university.
0: (laughs) Boazici. That's Bosporus for the translation, Bosporus. You know, the beautiful... Beautiful uh, sea that divides Istanbul into two, Asia and Europe. Yes. My university is uh, on the top of the hill looking over. So that was very difficult to study engineering in that school. <laughs> very distracting.
1: It's like going to school in Santa Barbara or Mykonos or something. It's like, well, good That's luck. That's
0: exactly how it was. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> you went to the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign to do CS there. Was that like a study abroad thing? Or did you go there for your advanced degree?
0: No, no, no. It was a one semester study abroad. I got a scholarship from UIUC and I studied one semester there, which got counted back to my normal college degree.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong, but that was an interesting time to be at UIUC. Like 10 years before that, when Marc Andreessen and the folks from Netscape were there, they had a very (laughs) unique lab or in their computer science program. Did you have any idea that was going on? Was that even going on?
0: That was going on. I had no idea it was going on. (laughs) I uh, sometimes really, I'm a very lucky person. I get lucky with things that I didn't have a clue in life. No, uh, it was funny. I learned that that was written there. And then I listened to a lot of the, back then there was not blog uh, post or podcast, right? So I listened to the interviews and it said, winters get really boring in UIUC. So there has been a lot of innovation from computer science department there and, oh boy, yes, winters were really boring in UIUC.
1: And for the audience listening, this is where Mark Andreessen, like they had a supercomputer that was like one of the first in the world. I'm going to butcher this. And Mark Andreessen went to school there in the 90s, I think, and came up with the Internet, basically, as we know it. Is that right? I'm, I'm sure I'm messing that up.
0: I'm not sure about that for sure, but there was like Siebel, the first CRM kind of, you know, back in the day was founded there. Netscape was there. There was a very, very strong electrical engineering department there working on, you know, lots of chip design. Amazing school. Even one semester did wonders for me to really be passionate about computer science.
1: That's awesome. Moving right along. Then you went to Toyota and you were in Brussels in Belgium at the time. You spent four years there as a senior project manager. Then you came back to the States to get your MBA at Wharton, at Penn, correct? Yes. And then you did a summer associate program at McKinsey, like kind of like an internship as a consultant. Then graduated Penn, it looks like, and then went back to McKinsey, spent three years at McKinsey, correct?
0: Correct.
1: Then you stumbled on this company, sub 150 employees called MongoDB. I'd say that was pretty good or lucky. I'd rather be lucky than good. And you were the director of global professional services. You did that for two years. And then the senior director for customer success for a year. Then the VP of CS and sales development for three years. So I guess that's a call it seven year run almost there.
0: Yeah. At Mongo? Six, six and a half, kind of, yeah, yeah.
1: And now you are the chief customer officer of Instabase as of, what, about a year ago?
0: About a year, yeah.
1: How'd I do? Okay.
0: Yeah, very good. All right. That's the story.
1: So when we first talked, I think you were in Turkey... Is that right? Is That's where you're from that's too, right? Cor- that's
0: correct. Yeah, I'm from Turkey, born and raised. Yes, 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 yes.
1: And when you were there, your parents had met the kids for the first time. Is that also right?
0: My second daughter was first time. Because of COVID, we couldn't go like many people around the world, right?
1: How nice is Turkey? I've been to Istanbul twice because it's really easy from... I'm Persian, so from Iran, it's really hard to get a visa to come to the States, as I'm sure you know. But to go to Turkey, I don't even think you need one. It's just a hop, skip, and a jump over from Iran. So whenever I want to see my family, we go to Istanbul. It's incredible
0: yeah i mean istanbul is this magical place right it's it's the duality everywhere it's the west and the east it's the modern and the rural it's the trying to be european but also in asia so i think this confusion this duality is it makes it very attractive i don't know i i don't know who will listen to this but turkey is an amazing place to visit and be a tourist it drives you crazy to be a citizen why Well, um, the country itself is going through a lot of difficult times as we speak right now, economically, socially, a lot of things have been changing and very difficult. But it's also historically, it's that intersection place, right? So it is by definition, a very unstable region. And that brings its difficulties to actually evolve and emerge as a country.
1: Yeah, but the food is so good. It's so okay. good.
0: There you go. To be a tourist and a to traveler be a tourist it's an is an amazing nice. place.
1: How old were you when you left Turkey?
0: I graduated and left. So I was 21, 20, 22 years old.
1: Do you have a Starbucks name in the US? What I mean by that is when I go to <laughs> Starbucks, I'm Jack. Because there's no way I'm going to say I'm Jubin. Otherwise, it's like you're never going to get your coffee. Do you have a Starbucks name?
0: Yeah, I resisted that. But <laughs> towards end, I gave up. I go for Oz, you know, like the Wizard of Oz. And then right. I get Ozzy and Oz <laughs> and yeah, you, you can't win that game. You can't win Starbucks game. Come on. Like even Jack will get, you know. Uh,
1: why'd you resist it? Because you felt like, you know, this is who I am. This is a core part of identity and my name is a signifier for that person. And you didn't want to Oh, no, no, out? no.
0: I was, not, I was not that very oriented. Honestly, I couldn't find any name that will resemble my name. So it will get my attention and it was just four letters, right? So, yeah, nothing specific to, like, part of identity or anything. I just couldn't find a name that resembled enough to be a substitute.
1: When did you learn English?
0: I started learning English around 14 years old, so pretty late.
1: And they teach that in school?
0: Yeah, yeah. But taught by Turkish teachers who also learned English as their second language, right? Yeah,
1: so they're so. not the best <laughs> teachers for English. they so. cannot be, yeah, yeah. Do you struggle with idioms? Because when I was growing up, my parents' English was not their first language. It was their second language. And so when English is your second language, one of the things that you definitely do not learn are idioms because those are very culturally specific to where you live. So they learned... English, like they just wanted to get by. And so idioms never have made it down to me because they never had it. You know, at my dinner table, no one was ever speaking in idioms. (laughs) What people think of as very basic idioms, I'm always like, Ooh, that's a good one. I've never heard that before. And it's a really interesting and effective way of communicating using idioms. But of course, I've never learned them. (laughs) Do
0: you know them? I don't think I know them and you're just making me very guilty of feeling probably I'm not (laughs) passing them to my daughters either. So now I have to go back and study. But that is one thing. The other thing that I struggle a lot. So if it happens in this podcast that everyone knows in my native language, Turkish, we don't have he or she. It's all one gender way of addressing. So he and she and all the, you know, relative differences of that sometimes gets mixed up if I'm really tired. Today I'm not tired, so hopefully I'll do a good job.
1: So you'll call she's, he's, and he's, she's?
0: Yeah, I will start mixing things up. Oh man, in this day and age, that's (laughs)
1: particularly tricky. So my mom came for college, probably similar-ish to you, from Iran. She immigrated here. And her dad passed away, mom sent her here to get a good education, went to UC Riverside because she thought it was on the water. She imagined what your school probably looked like. It's, it's not, it's not. And she had no money in her name and it kind of taught her everything that she is today. Like all of the goodness that came from her happened through that struggle. What was it like for you? Was it fucking scary? I just can't imagine. <laughs>
0: I think there are stories that are way scarier than mine, honestly. So I'm coming from a middle income family in Turkey, so I didn't come with a lot of, you know, credit cards or money with me. I just came with, I think, two months of rent and maybe two months of enough pocket money before the student loan gets deposited to my account. And then you kind of experience life a little bit differently than your classmates going through an MBA because, you know, you have to be careful, you know, you have to get that internship because that will probably pay for your second year. So you kind of experience things a little bit differently. Fear hasn't been a dominant emotion in my life most of the time. I think the way that I kind of combat it is I try to plan, I try to prioritize, and I try to really think about the risks very carefully. I wasn't scared. I just knew I had to do things a little bit differently, as I, as I mentioned, right? Like I couldn't go on every single road trip or vacation during the MBA class, but I did other things instead.
1: If fear is not an emotion that you generally feel, because we all have them, what's the negative emotion that generally percolates up, whether it's with the job, kids, when the world starts crunching on you? Yeah. If it's not fear, what is it?
0: Guilt for me. What do you mean? Guilt of not being enough, guilt of missing something, guilt of not being the best. That's my demon that I'm fighting.
1: So guilt as in if you're being a great employee, then you're not being a good enough mom. And if you're being a great mom, then you're not being a good enough employee.
0: Yeah, that's right there. 99% of working women.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And if you're being great at both of those things, then you're not doing great taking care of yourself.
0: There you go. Yeah.
1: Are you raising the kids just you? My mom raised me, just me, which is (sighs) Herculean effort on her part.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. My heart goes out to your, to your mom. No, I have my husband is an extremely hands-on and really a co-partner in raising the kids. Even though we are born and raised in Turkey, both of us, we don't carry the old school social norms into our marriage and partnership. So I'm extremely, again, lucky to actually have him in my life. Definitely, we are equal with the kids.
1: As you've gone through in your career, and we're going to talk all about it, but I, I want to explore this guilt thing a little bit more. Like as you've gone <laughs> through, I'll use two examples. When you had your second kid, do you feel like you had a better perspective on the way that you handle that guilty feeling? Example number two, when you are more senior in your career, you're a chief customer officer now, you just things are a little bit more solidified. You have more self-confidence do you deal with that guilt differently or does it just show up in different ways?
0: I think it shows up in different ways. I definitely, I'm getting better at dealing with it because if you ask me this question five years ago, I probably didn't even know the emotion that I was dealing with, right? So I think just figuring that out was step number one for me. And for me, it was not anger, it was not shame, it was not fear, as I said, it was not regret, it was really guilt of not doing enough. And then I, I started to peel the onion and I started to figure out, okay, where is that not being enough is coming from? And then you go all the way, <laughs> hopefully today we will not go there, but you, will, you go all the way to the beginnings, right? And from there on, you can figure out mechanisms to actually, first of all, figure out where it is coming from, the signals that it's getting triggered, and then find better ways to deal with it. But like the second kid question is really spot on. In the beginning, when you're a first-time parent, you're all thinking you are fully in control of anything that happens to your kid. You are the only reason why your kid is not eating or sleeping or not sleeping. And then when you have your second kid, you're the same mom. The house is the same house. The setup is the same. You know, my second daughter behaves exactly the opposite of my first one. And then you realize, oh, it was not me, actually. It was the kid. (laughs) There are two in this relationship. So things like that. Same, same thing professionally.
1: Let's not peel the onion together, but I am curious about the process with which you are peeling the onion. What I mean by that is, what kind of questions are you asking yourself? What tools do you have to be able to start identifying what is that feeling? because I think that's a really hard thing for people. And by the way, it's a really consistent pattern of all of my guests, which is that when you're such an overachiever in your life, certainly professionally, that comes at the sacrifice of many other things. And it's often hard to feel or identify what that feeling really is. So I'd love to hear more about how you started to figure out what that emotion was.
0: I mean, you have to have a trigger to start asking yourself the question. I used to make this joke, like people talk about burnout and I used to say, hey, I regularly burn out. I'm like the Phoenix. I burn out and then I come back. (laughs) So at at some point I had to stop that circle because it was not healthy for me. It was not healthy for anyone around me. And that that was my trigger. That's when I said, okay, why am I trying to, to your point, overachieve? And what happens if I don't overachieve? And that was the first question that I asked. Then the guilt emotion came to the surface because everyone asked me the same question, just like you asked, oh, you're afraid of something. And I was really not afraid of something. So you kind of go through elimination, I guess. You can do this with your best friends or people who really know you, or you can also, for instance, I had a coach that I spent some time to actually peeling the onion with someone who can be objective with me. So, I'm a big believer in getting that kind of help when you need because everyone around you is kind of have their own biases as well. And then I I also read a lot of psychology books of understanding yourself, where the emotions are coming from. And that helped me to put literature around my feelings.
1: When you're burning out, what does that look like? Like when the phoenix hasn't risen yet, but is still in ashes. <laughs> What does burnout look like for Oscar?
0: Now I know my signals. Burnout looks like for me that I haven't done something lately for myself. That is the biggest indicator of burnout. You know, everything else is taking priority over myself. That's number one. Number two is I'm typically a very detail-oriented, hands-on leader professionally, and I get more and more involved in details. I want to know more data, which is my way of not trusting my intuition or gut feeling because I'm trying to balance it with more and more data. That's my biggest clue in professional life that burnout is either in its midway or it's starting to happen.
1: So you had mentioned you're taking care of yourself. The big buckets that I generally see, especially my past guests, is family, their job, their health, and then their friends and community. Let's use that framing. It sounds like where you usually put the bottom is health, like taking care of you, whether that's going for a massage or eating well or working out. Is that fair?
0: Yeah, That's very fair.
1: It's funny. I used to feel the same way. In fact, I used to count my hours in a day. And if I didn't get to 10 hours of working in a day, I would have to make that up. It was an absolute value that I would quantify in order to know whether or not I am, in fact, dedicating enough of my time to my career.
0: Did you count the same hours for dedication to yourself?
1: So what I realized was that when you count absolute hours like I did, I'm not counting the quality of the hours, rather just the quantity. And the trigger for me, what was really important for me to realize was that when I focus on my health, when I work out every day, I eat a salad, skip breakfast, have coffee, whatever it is, the quality of my hours is so much higher, so much better. And so when I realized, like for me, it was selfish. I said, if work is my priority right now because I don't have kids or a significant other that I need to have in my stack rank, I do a pretty good job with my community and my friends, then I wanna be more effective in my job. And I think if I take care of myself first, then the hours that i do put into my career are much higher quality and i can still put in the same amount of hours they're just better hours
0: that's spot on and you use the word you were feeling selfish of taking care of yourself because you were thinking that you're transferring hours from one bucket to the other but actually you are amplifying all the hours that are available to you and when you let go of that selfish again feeling guilty of doing something selfish you kind of actually help everyone in your circle. There is this culture, I know your podcast name is Grit, right? There is this culture of pushing for grit, pushing for more hustling, pushing for more work, pushing for to be more aggressive, but no one actually thinks about the dark side of those things and what's the cost of them and how to balance them. So I guess it comes with experience, with age, with the number of burnouts you, know, you have in your life, but sooner or later, I'm noticing everyone is kind of coming to the same conclusion, that self-centeredness is extremely important.
1: So when I think of the word grit, everyone wants grit. Let's use resilience as a euphemism for it. Everyone wants the coat of armor that it gives you so that once adversity happens, you can deal with it effectively. What nobody wants to do is actually go through the adversity in order to build that coat of armor. (laughs) And so I think the only way that you can learn how to be better about prioritizing your health, as an example, is by doing a shitty job with it and then realizing how that affects you and then having to be reborn as a phoenix, which by the way, that might be an episode title for us here, but having to redo (laughs) that process. Like, I think you have to do that. I think you just have to do that. The other question that I was going to ask you, and I've asked previous guests this, who are also first generation immigrants is, what you went through to build a life is not going to be the same as what your kids have. So there's this chip on your shoulder that I imagine is difficult to pass on. My mom did it to me because it was everything and it was at my dinner table and it was the only thing that mattered. And I felt that all the time, but, but I think it's not the same when I haven't felt the pressure and difficulty of having to make it in a new country like that.
0: Yeah, maybe not all stories have to be the same, right? Maybe not all of us have to round our edges exactly the same harsh and fast way. But I think what I agree with you, yes, you have to go through your own journey and own story. Otherwise, there is no book or no conversation or no mentorship in the world that's going to teach you to become yourself, to find your own path. But I think we can actually shortcut that pain or shortcut that time and journey. I think it's on us as the previous generation or the previous you know, leaders or the moms and fathers out there to actually be there to help. You cannot spoon feed it, but you can definitely be there supporting when you spot someone going through a burnout, right? Someone actually going through a difficult time.
1: Totally. You joined Mongo at around 100, 150, somewhere around, somewhere in that mark?
0: It was around, yeah, 100, 150.
1: When did you realize how special this company was? <laughs> because to go from McKinsey to Mongo as your first real ride is crazy. I mean, everybody on my show gets those rides, but most people in the world do not get those rides. They're very, very rare. When did you know?
0: I remember the moment where I knew it was actually going to be really interesting. I definitely didn't join MongoDB when it was this shiny, successful company, right? It became that after, not because of me, but because of many, many things that happened. I still remember the first QBR in Vegas and the room was, we were around 12 or maybe 15 people maximum. And I thought, you know, coming from McKinsey, joining all these big uh, meetings, you always think about, okay, we are going to talk about strategy. We are going to throw around metrics. There will be a planning session, a prioritization. None of that happened. We talked about what kind of profiles we are going to hire, what kind of culture we are going to instill, how the operational excellence will look like, how we are going to hold each other accountable. Like There was so much emphasis on how this is going to feel like, rather than how it is going to look like or be managed like. And I think that point I knew, okay, this is different. This is really going to be building a scalable generational company, rather than actually fix the metrics and what looks good on paper and move on with it.
1: You've worked with previous guests of the show, Carlos Della Torre, Megan Eisenberg. Were you there before them?
0: Yes, shortly before Carlos and definitely before Megan, yes. I actually started uh, one week before Dave started formally.
1: Dave being the CEO.
0: David Cheria, the CEO of MongoDB. How much
1: revenue do you remember was the company doing when you joined?
0: Yes, we were um, on the ballpark of 20 to 30 million ARR.
1: When you work with people like Dave, Carlos, Megan, these are like um, pretty strong personalities, number one. Number two, they have a lot of conviction in what they're gonna do. And Mongo, and as a byproduct of that, the people are very hard charging. (laughs) And in your job, you were probably the only organization that touched every team at the company. So you're kind of having to play Switzerland. However, you're stuck between <laughs> some pretty strong-minded countries, if you will. How was that?
0: <laughs> it's a jiu-jitsu, right? You <laughs> cannot... Uh... <laughs> yes, so first of all, you are right in your assessments of very good, intuitive, operational leaders, they have their convictions, they are very strong, very authoritative, but I think one thing that is not very easily noticed, they're actually all there for the growth and learning. That's not probably visible from outside in. What I mean by that, if you're bringing value, and if you're bringing value with conviction, with your data, with your observations, and you meaning me in that mix, you know, being accountable to the, to the things that I'm pitching or want to do, there is a lot of actually hunger and space to be listened and to be given you know, chances. And yes, you have to adopt your style sometimes, but I think I learned through the years that I have a certain style and regardless of what is on the other side, It just takes iteration and trust to get into the same frequency.
1: I was talking to Carlos yesterday, two days ago, and uh, we were talking about you. He said, Ozge has always approached problems in a very analytical way. She's a big thinker and often comes up with elegant solutions. She was something of a fixer at MongoDB. Over her tenure, she had a lot of roles and responsibilities because whenever hard problems were there or presented, and the solution wasn't obvious. Everyone knew that she would figure it out. Really cool quote, I thought. Oh my God. So nice. (laughs) So nice. Question I have about this. What were some of the hard problems that they threw you at?
0: This is a joke I shared with Dave also, David Cherry, and he had a good laugh about it. You know, in sixth sense, the kid says, (laughs) I see dead people. Uh, Unfortunately, throughout my education and I think early career, I have this code, like I see broken processes. So they, they didn't always have to throw things at me. I kind of also have a way to either attract them or find them on my own. But some of the big ones, right? These professional services should be a revenue center or a cost center? Should we invest in it for customers' success and enablement, or should we charge for it and try to drive margin from it? I don't think anyone still knows this in the industry because there is no one answer. It depends on your product, it depends on your maturity, it depends on how you're engaging with your customer. What do we do with customers who are open source and the product on the enterprise side? This is not valid anymore for Mongo, but I think it's valid for a lot of open source companies out there. When the open source product versus the paid product is not differentiated a lot for its features, how do you actually get the customers to switch and to stay? When you're running an on prem product, you are flying blind basically. You have no idea if your customer is using the product or how they are using the product. How do you engage the customer? How do you scale that operation when all you know is what your customer is telling you? And then when you're opening up a SaaS product, sales is selling one way, right? They are selling annual contracts on prem. Your product starts selling itself on free tier PLG. How do you centralize standard customer success function? Those are very two different motions out there. And then towards the end, they've asked me, do we need a sales development team on an open source product where we don't have an inbound problem? Can you give me the answer to that was my reason of taking the sdr team over because if you think about it i'm a post sales person right i have nothing to do with uh, running all the way in the pre-sales sdr function
1: and that's that caught my eye when i was reading your background back to you at the beginning let's unpack that a little bit what did you do what was your answer to dave
0: in the beginning i i I went in and I started to do what I always do, right? I listened to all the stakeholders in the mix of the problem. I listened to the team, I listened to the managers of those teams, and then I listened to the customers of that team, which was sales and marketing. And obviously everyone had a different perspective, different angle. And then we had inbound, we had outbound, we had all the things that could have been in the playbook of an SDR organization. and. The funny thing is everyone was doing their best, but no one was happy (laughs) with each other. So I think it became very obvious to me that we had to stop doing a lot of things and start doing one thing. Honestly, it didn't matter which one thing it was. We just had to scope down first before building the team back up. So that that was the entry point. At the end of the journey, the answer was absolutely yes, because we went from, I think 10 people in Austin where you are today, doing inbound to, by the time I left after the two years of running the SDR team, 75 to 80 people globally running inbound program, outbound program, and then a portion of the PLG experiment as well.
1: How the hell did you learn how to do that? Maybe you didn't. Maybe you just hired someone great.
0: I did hire someone great for sure to teach me also because I didn't have time to learn it all by myself, right? So it's very important that for me to actually augment myself in that space very quickly. But I think what is important to notice when you're thrown into problems like this, when the answer is not to maintain it or make it a little bit better, but to completely turn it around. It's sometimes better not to know every single detail and the tactics. It's sometimes better to go in. I think the fancy word that's being thrown around these days is first principle thinker, but I think it's just old school, nice problem solving. Like You just take a problem, you divide it into the components of it. You ask yourself the so what, what will be the impact, what should be the output. And then in a very engineering, maybe that's what Carlos is calling me analytical, you start experimenting, right? You start experimenting to see how you're actually optimizing what you're trying to achieve. It helps to know who has been doing this before next to you, which I definitely had. Clay Coyle, who is, I think, still with MongoDB today running the SDR, was someone who I depended a lot, learning the jargon, the metrics, and units of running an SDR business but I also had to ask some very sometimes stupid questions just to make everyone think a little bit differently.
1: What was your worst day at Mongo? Seven, six and a half, seven years there.
0: There were very, very difficult days because the company literally changed and doubled every year. So whatever got you to success didn't get you to success in the next year. But I think my My most difficult day was the day that I had to announce to my team that I was leaving. I have a very high sense of loyalty and um, regardless of all my reasons and everything, I felt that I was leaving my team behind.
1: You felt guilty.
0: Yeah. There you go. Full circle. (laughs) That was my most difficult day.
1: I don't know where I read this, but it was cool it was you describing a moment when you were standing in your, I think, first board meeting at Mongo (laughs) about to present your strategy for how you're going to build a CS program there. And you said your heart was beating out of your chest. You were three months pregnant with your first child (laughs) and had six months to get the program off the ground. What was that like?
0: I mean, that was a moment, right? Like everything that you're saying is kind of working against you in that moment. You don't get a lot of chances of pitching your idea to the board to get an investment, to do something that hasn't been done before. Mongo didn't have a customer success team before we started building one. It was not clear what it would do, what it wouldn't do. And then I just had a timeline, like a biological timeline, you know, six months later I had to be on maternity leave. So... It had to be done quickly, but it, was, it also felt great because now whoever is listening to this story can also go to that bored me when they are going through a very difficult or challenging life experience and can hopefully use that energy to figure things out. And looking back right now, I would have done it a million times over again, no regrets, again, no fear, <laughs> but it took a lot of planning.
1: Do you think your heart was racing because you weren't sure you were right or because you knew you were right and you wanted them to agree with you?
0: Yes. Second one. I knew I was right. I did my analysis. I did talk to customers. I actually had codes. I kind of run small experiments to prove you know, my point. I just really wanted it very badly for the company to have such a program at that point, it wasn't even about me getting to build that program. I really deeply believed that the company needed such thing.
1: And they did ultimately too, obviously.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: I've heard you say, speaking of being pregnant, that you said something I wasn't expecting to learn is that I became even more productive than I used to be after I became a mother. There's a common perception that working mothers constantly struggle with work-life balance and being productive. We were often told that sometimes we need to fail in one area if we want to excel in another. For me and many others around me, this wasn't the case. Really cool quote. Can you tell me more?
0: Yes. There is this story that has been told over probably decades to moms that it will be very difficult for you to go back to work. You will have the mommy brain, whatever that means. It will be very difficult to prioritize things. There will be curveballs coming your way from the childcare side. And all of those difficulties are true, by the way. It is a very, very difficult job to balance, especially the first two years of your child life and a demanding job. But I think what doesn't get said or shared out loud, it teaches you to be an amazing leader, an amazing operator. Because all of a sudden, you're actually running two companies at the same time, one at home and one in the professional life. And maybe they're not perfect, but you know what? You don't need to be perfect. You just need to run it good enough and simultaneously. And I just wanted to tell that story in that article I think you're, you're referring to, because If a chance given and an encouragement is given to working moms out there, and it starts with this generation, imagine the next generation. Imagine my daughter not growing up with that story in her mind. Imagine her daughter not growing up with that story in her mind. And in maybe three, four generations, we will be looking into a very different setup when it comes to gender equality. So the chain has to be broken somewhere. It's my attempt to try to crack it.
1: You joined Instabase about a year ago. Series B raised at 1.1 to 3, over a billion. Andreessen, NEA, Greylock, three of the top 10 banks in the US are customers. In 30 seconds, what what does Instabase do?
0: (laughs) Instabase does document understanding right now filled with deep learning. What it does, just to give you an example, If you're applying for a home mortgage today, you submit all these paperwork to your bank and it takes them operationally a lot of pain to go through them, to map it and then to underwrite it and give you a code for your mortgage. And in the meanwhile, they can lose you because you're shopping and if another bank is faster, more seamless, you will take your business there, right? So by applying Instabase, the banks are actually really transforming their document understanding and as a result, going much faster for their customer service that's just one area of application
1: you left mongo and were interviewing for instabase eight months pregnant is that right with yeah, kid number yeah. two <laughs> correct yes. talk about fearless most people would say okay take your maternity leave and then go find the next gig not you
0: here is the thing. life doesn't come in stages and in perfect plans and you know aligned back to back. It just happens sometimes. And as you're probably noticing from my two pregnancy stories, I don't take being pregnant or being a mom as a decelerator or any way shape or form, a problem to excel or do professionally also really well, which is probably counterintuitive. but yes, Life brought me that opportunity. It was the right time. And yes, I was also, you know, eight months pregnant. This time I knew what I was going to do at least. The first time I had no idea. (laughs)
1: That's amazing. Why did you decide to join a company of this size again? What I mean by that is you have seen the early stage at Mongo all the way through very serious scale. Which means that generally speaking, your recruiting profile could fit into any bucket, mid-round, early-round, growth, whatever ARR you basically wanted to go into, you've already done. You've already had that experience, so you'd probably be qualified to do. Why did you choose basically the same size-ish as when you joined Mongo?
0: It's what uh, you had from Carlos, right? She's the fixer. She's the builder. I had to fix and build again and i wanted this time for it to be completely mine from the start so i know i'm responsible for all the good and the bad that it happens on the journey you can only get that opportunity when you're really going very early on that's one the second one I haven't really seen the product market fit journey with MongoDB, because by the time I joined, it had an amazing open source followership. The commercialization was not figured out, but the product market fit was there. And I want to see the product market fit side, which was a big risk because if it is not there, you know, it's it's, story is over. Instabase was in the early stage of actually focusing and addressing that place. And I wanted to live through that experience.
1: So I pretty much consumed every form of media you've ever done, written or video or audio. And one of the things that kept catching my attention was how much you talked about measurement of your teams. What I always heard you talk about is the format and the thought with which you put into actually measuring folks. What I wanted to learn more about is why and how. How much do you think about the success metrics for your team? Do you think this much about it? It was just something that randomly caught my eye as a consistent pattern across many things that you tend to talk about.
0: Yeah, no, this is very observant of you. You're right. I mean, one of the reasons that I focus on it because I'm very analytical and experimental as an engineer in in, in mindset. And I would like to make sure that my experiment is actually working or not working very quickly. I would like to, you know, iterate very quickly, so that's why probably metrics are very important. But I think there is a broader theme here. If you think about customer success, it is still trying to find its footing out there, right? Like everyone talks about customer success, but there are so many different playbooks, so many different ways of approaching it. Is it a renewals team? Is it an enablement team? Is it an onboarding team? Is it a growth team? Is it a product-oriented team? Is it a sales-oriented team? Like There are millions of questions around what it is really. Should it report to the CEO? Should it report to the CRO? Should it report, you know? So I think my way of giving an answer and being both accountable and also a good shareholder, I had to measure it. There was no other way. I had to show if it was working or not because the discipline is very new.
1: You felt like the burden of proof was much higher on you.
0: Yes. Then exactly. like,
1: Carlos, it's very binary. Did you hit your number?
0: I mean, at the surface, yes. Obviously, there are so many other things that happens in a sales organization, a marketing organization, but those are known. There are benchmarks out there. You can go and check what is the average quota attainment of a, this size of company, that size of company. There are decades of history and research. Try to do the same for customer success. I mean, nothing out there.
1: You've said in my head, the CS organization is the development team of my customer. Is that right? Yes. Tell me more about that.
0: If you think about it, in the very past, the customer would buy some technology from someone like Oracle or IBM, one of the big companies, and it will be on the customer to figure it out. Right? It's not anymore like this. It's still on the vendor to actually drive the value to the customer. The customer is just accepting that value to be delivered by the vendor and not by themselves. So as a result, your customer success organization, the organization that I run, that I'm responsible for, needs to become an extended team for the customer. And it's specifically a developer team or a development team, because I typically tend to work for companies that are more developer-focused or you know infrastructure tech-focused. That's where that quote is coming from.
1: You have a... Bit of a reputation in my circle for being a badass recruiter. (laughs) I wanna talk to you about that. Even the story that you said about the hire that you made for inside sales. You've never even done inside sales before. I've heard you say that for CS, generally speaking, folks look for candidates and you as well that either have sales or technical ability. It's often understood that there is a trade off where you get one or the other. And that it's very, very rare that you get both. And so sometimes you have to say, okay, I'll take one and teach the other. Especially when you're hiring at the rate that you generally are and the growth rates that you have to do. For example, Instabase has grown 300% over the last two years. I've heard you say when you joined, you were the only CS person there. And now, a year later, there's over 60 people on your team. Correct. You've hired one person a week? Correct hired, I don't think people understand how hard that is, how much time that takes. <laughs> and the non-negotiable skill that you said someone must have is a high tolerance for ambiguity. Yes. Tell me more about that.
0: Yes. This is an area that's extremely important for me.
1: How do you test for it?
0: You can always ask questions, right? The behavioral typical questions, tell me about the time, etc., cetera, et cetera, fill in the blanks. But I actually create those moments in the interview process. I create a level of ambiguity in a case study or a presentation or the way that the conversation is going. And I try to listen very carefully for those moments. One thing that I do, for instance, which everyone who interviewed with me will know this, typically in my interviews, I don't start with asking questions. I actually say, hey, you're going to ask me some questions, I'm going to ask you some questions, but I'm going to just start with your questions first. That is a huge ambiguity, if you think about it for a minute, for a candidate who just showed up with all their answers written to potentially questions that will be asked, and you said, no, the mic is yours, go ahead. You run the interview for the first half of it by asking me questions, the way that people you know, react to this, the way that they gather themselves, the way that they think about their questions, prioritize them, order them, start the conversation is exactly how you manage ambiguity. So you don't have to create this like extremely fancy ways to measure it. It can be as simple as, as this.
1: Is another way of saying this that you want to figure out if they're a startup person, maybe the reason that you need a high tolerance for ambiguity is because it's startups. That's all it is. And if you can't, solve problems through ambiguity you're gonna really struggle
0: yeah exactly that i mean it's honestly just in life if you have resilience and adaptability that's what i'm trying to figure out because i don't know the answers no one knows the answers in a startup and if you think you know the answer in six months time that answer is going to be you know not relevant anymore because everything would change so that's exactly what i'm trying to figure out the other thing that i'm trying to figure out if you have high tolerance for ambiguity, you're actually a very structured thinker and a good prioritizer because you can go through those moments of not knowing and manage your stress level and burnout and all the things that we talked in the beginning of the conversation.
1: It's funny. I went to Kleiner to prove to myself that I could do this because when you come (laughs) from sales, there is the least level of ambiguity for inputs and outputs. What I mean by that is it's very, very clear what you need to do. And generally the playbook is very systematized. You walk into Carlos Del Torre's sales organization, you know exactly how to PG, prospect, the amount of leads you need to get to the amount of meetings to get to the quota. And so when you systematize sales, the whole goal of that is to take ambiguity out. You want to reduce as many variables as possible so that people can focus on what matters. And I felt like I was a part of that system as well. And I always thought, as long as I'm in an early stage startup, there's still a lot of resourcefulness that I need to get my job done. But ultimately, I didn't know if I was in fact able to do that until I went to a situation where there was nothing. There was completely blank slate, no success metrics, (laughs) create my own prioritization matrix, everything. Uh, And it's been one of the most liberating things that I've ever done. Because you can prove to yourself. And if you can prove that to yourself, it's so empowering. Then you start to, to your point, which is what I think you did, like your spidey senses for problems become so much more acute. (laughs) And your confidence to go tackle those problems just becomes greater and greater. Because you know that if you get thrown in the deep end, you might be able to actually swim your way out.
0: Yeah, definitely. It doesn't come in the absence of systems and processes, but I think it really helps as a customer success person, when you pick up the phone, you don't know what the customer is going through. You don't know how the product is being used. I mean, it's one way engineers imagined it, it's a complete another way customers will be using it. You don't know what the sales conversation was before you, right? So there is a lot to actually figure out on a daily basis.
1: I've heard you say, and this was really great advice, so I have to repeat it. I've heard you say that you talk to a lot of startup founders. I've actually introduced you to a few myself, and they often ask you, Osge, how do I set up a CS function? Your response is what? Go ahead.
0: My response is uh, two things. First, do you need a product augmentation or do you need a sales augmentation? Let's first figure that out, because to your point, you're not going to get that super salesy and also extremely technical unicorn out there to scale your customer success. So it's, it's important to start with which problem we are selling. And then the other thing that's important, which is more about organization or hierarchy, they ask me who that should report to, where should I put this organization in the, in the hierarchy? And I say, who do you want waking up every day thinking about customer problems? And escalations and implementation and value optimization. Once you figure that person out, that's your reporting line. Typically in the beginning, it is a founder and then as the organization scales, it finds itself either standalone function or it finds itself back to sales or sometimes back to product.
1: What is the signal that it's time to hire someone that wakes up and only thinks about CS? Uh, what life cycle in the company?
0: Usually when the founder cannot scale to do that, in the beginning, it has to be either the CEO or the founder, because again, there are three things that you're constantly balancing in CS, right? You're balancing product, you're balancing sales, you're balancing marketing, because you're touching all these three functions on an ongoing basis. The moment that the founder thinks that, okay, I am not scaling myself to actually keep everything going, and I probably need a more scalable, systematic way to figure out this problem, that is usually the clue. To get there. And it's typically probably a quarter late that a founder will get to that point.
1: I have a selfish and tactical question that comes up very often in my own conversations with our founders, which is double comping both reps and CS for the deals, especially in the early days. How do you think about comping reps if you have a CS team for things like renewals? Does the question make sense?
0: Yes, it does. I don't like it, because I think it diffuses the accountability. I think there are ways that you need to hire and incentivize customer success to make sure that they are caring about renewal. If you're double comping, it tells me that either you have the wrong profile or complete the wrong incentives in place to take care of the customer.
1: Couldn't it also be that the expansion model is so extreme in the company that it de-risks finding, discovering and then winning expansion deals by having sales in there more proactively, or you think that should still be a CS function?
0: You can still take care of your customer in different ways, right? You can actually set up structures in place that will result in expansion without the double comping. Here is what I believe. I think compensation is just one aspect of driving behavioral, I think the type of profiles and the type of programs you put in place and just expectations, you know, you put in place in an organization will drive the right behavioral. If you're finding yourself depending on incentive structure all the time, that's probably a signal for a bigger problem in the org.
1: I wrap all these the same exact way. What does the word grit mean to you?
0: Grit is... uh, (laughs) At its core, it's a survival instinct, right? You you just have to do what you need to do to stay alive. I think for me, the best grit is when it comes from a very positive underlying emotion, when it comes from a desire to be better, learn more, be kind, and I think be more together with others. I ask myself, do I want my kids to only have grit? Probably the answer is no. I want them to have other things together with grit.
1: Are you hiring? I mean, you're hiring. Let's assume you're hiring.
0: (laughs) I am hiring.
1: (laughs) What are you hiring for? Are there any key roles that you want to shout out? What's the best way to get a hold of you, if so?
0: Yes, the best way to get a hold of me is on LinkedIn or email. We can share in in the blog post. I'm pretty responsive on those two channels. We are hiring. We are hiring for across the customer success spectrum: technical account managers, uh, solution engineers, reliability engineers, and technical documentation and curriculum engineers. So it's a very broad spectrum. We are hiring everywhere, and we are also fully remote. So we are open to the global talent pool, and would love to talk with you, even if it doesn't turn into something. Would love to, you know, get in touch with anyone who is listening.
1: Well, was good. thank you
0: thank you so much
1: that's it thanks for listening if you're just discovering the podcast we have a lot more episodes from organizations like snowflake twilio slack linkedin box etc if you want to keep up or support the show the best way to do so is by following us on spotify subscribing on apple and leaving a review thanks talk soon